from the government policy. Mm. Do you think these companies, these tech companies like Alibaba, for example, big slump in earnings, uh, big slump in their share price as well? It's, it's almost at its all-time low now. Do you think they can ever recover their former glory? Uh, <laughs> they can recover part of the gallery, but uh, but you, as you know that for the uh, for this year January February, all technology stock uh, stock prices is sky high. So mm. I don't think they they take a very long time to get back those valuation level. But anyway, for Alibaba, uh, I think the first quarter corporate earnings is not the main issue. Uh, they reduce the guidance for Q4 as as well as the two o two two. That's the real reason uh, the stock being downgraded. Okay, thank you very much. You heard that, Kenny Wen, Wealth Management Strategist at Everbright Sun Hunkai, David Roche, President and Global Strategist at Independent Strategy, Barry Wood, our International Economics Correspondent in Washington, D.C. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Let's take one more look at the markets for this morning. In Australia, the ASX 200 is off 0.1%. The Nikkei 225 in Japan is down about half a percent. Futures markets pointing to a slide of about a Another 100 points for the Hang Seng. In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil trading right now at $82.16 a barrel. Pretty well unchanged from where it closed in New York. Gold is also pretty well unchanged from the New York close. Uh, right now, $1,789 an ounce. That's it from me. Do please stay tuned to Back Chat with Jim, Cor- uh, with Jim Gordon and Anna Fenton coming up in just a moment. The weather forecast uh, for today... It's going to be um, dry, cool in the morning, cloudy at first, then going to become fine during the day. Maximum temperature is going to be around 21 degrees, fine and dry in the next few days. The fire danger warning is at red at the moment, and it's 18 degrees, 65% relative humidity. It's 8.32. Here's Andrew Shrosky with the Half Hour News. The president of the Hong Kong Federation of Restaurants says eateries mostly support the mandated use of the COVID location recording app. In just over two weeks' time, the Leave Home Safe app will be necessary to enter regulated premises, including restaurants, gyms and hotels. Simon Wong says some customers have been writing down fake contact details in lieu of using the app, which caused problems for frontline staff. In the past month, government has do a lot of checking on the restaurants and they found that some customers did not use the apps and they also filled in fake information on the forms. At the end, the restaurants were being punished and we feel that this is not right. So we voice out to the government that this kind of measures should extend to all types of restaurants, not just for the government buildings. He also said he hoped the government could relax restrictions on certain categories of restaurants to allow more people to eat at a table and longer operating hours. A member of the Commission on Children says the government needs to set up a system to investigate all deaths of children. Priscilla Loy was commenting after a government advisory panel said child suicides more than doubled between 2016 and 2018 compared to the previous three-year period. The Children Review Fatality Panel said of 259 reported underage deaths, 61% were from natural causes, around 23% committed suicide. Lloyd said the government should investigate each case to identify trends and put more resources into preventing deaths from all causes. So I think the entire situation deserves um, serious resources and attention both in policies, uh, legislation, education and the system itself. 
In a bid to bring down energy prices, the United States is to release 50 million barrels of oil from its strategic reserves. President Biden explained why he made the decision. So today I'm announcing that the largest ever release from the U.S. Strategic Petroleum Reserve to help provide the supply we need as we recover from this pandemic. In addition, I brought together other nations to contribute to the solution. India, Japan, Republic of Korea, and the United Kingdom have agreed to release additional oil from their reserves, and China may do more as well. This coordinated action will help us deal with a lack of supply, which in turn helps ease prices. The bottom line, today we're launching a major effort to moderate the price of oil. The House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy said it was not a real solution to the energy crisis, rather a crass political ploy. A jury in the U.S. state of Georgia has begun its deliberations in the case of three white men charged with the murder of a black man last year. The defendants are accused of shooting Ahmad Arbery while he was out jogging in the city of Brunswick. They've pleaded not guilty. And that's the news from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Jim Gould and your co-host today is Anna Fenton. Good morning, Anna. Good morning, everybody. On this morning's programme, we're taking another look at the Lantau Tomorrow Vision. That's the huge reclamation planned for the waters between uh, Lantau and Hong Kong Islands. Fifteen environmental groups have jointly criticised an environmental uh, impact assessment report for the project, saying it underestimates the effect on marine life and carbon emissions. In recent weeks, much attention has uh, also been focused on another ambitious plan, the proposed Northern Metropolis, announced in the Chief Executive's uh, policy address last month. And the administration says that both mega-projects uh, will proceed in order to address the territory's long-term housing needs and to advance uh, infrastructure and economic development. From 9.15, we're talking about Australia's plan to reopen to foreign students and skilled workers. Let us know your thoughts. You can leave a message on our Facebook page at Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. Email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call on 233-88266. And uh, we're joined in the studio by Chan Hall-Sion, who's a Greenpeace campaigner. And also on the line, we have uh, Tom Yam, who's a member of the Citizens Task Force on Land Resources. And at 8.45, we're hoping to be joined uh, by Ryan Yip, who's uh, head of land and housing research at the Ah Hong Kong Foundation. Um, but uh, Chan Hall-Sion, uh, good morning to you. Good morning. So I understand one of the complaints that was made yesterday by the environmental uh, groups which held this news conference was that there was a lot of important information that was uh, not disclosed in the report. Can you uh, elaborate a bit? Yeah, that's true. Uh, because uh, this is such a the largest scale of reclamation project ever, so we expect like the highest standard of uh, everything, including how they do the uh, environmental impact assess and whether they have some basic information, uh, the public disclosure of the information where we can make the judgment and then we can know this is the best choice for us. But uh, for those information, they are supposed to list on, uh, there's a document called the 2030 plus strategic environmental assessment. Yeah. And uh, there should be listed out uh, with uh, more options 
uh, other than reclamation, because the problem is a short of land supply, and we're supposed to have many uh, um, options to solve this problem. And the government actually uh, spent uh, quite some years to do uh, this strategic environmental assessment, but uh, until now they have finished the report, but they haven't disclosed any part of the SEA at all. So we think that's a, a missing a very big piece of information. Is it normal for them to withhold the results of these assessments? Uh, no, uh, no, because as far as we know, there is a previous version of the 2030. That's, uh, because now it's a 2030 plus, and uh, some years ago they have done a 2030. That's also for the planning for Hong Kong land supply. And for that, there is a whole report for that, and also a part of uh, strategic environmental assessment, and it's widely public on their website now. And uh, also for the 2030 plus uh, currently, uh, actually the uh, environmental uh, advisory council. They the members also urge the government to disclose that because that's the what they usually do and what they promise to do when they write a consultancy brief when they uh, have the agreement with the consultancy firm. But then uh, everything is just uh, missing and they just like oh we're considering and yeah let's see something like that. So, so what specific information relating to the Lantau Tomorrow Vision uh, do you think should be made public? Uh, well, firstly, that's uh, the first uh, the, the thing that they have done for the 2030 plus strategic environmental assessment. That should be disclosed publicly and without any reservation. And uh, the second one that they should have done uh, for land to more efficient is uh, a strategic uh, environmental assessment mm. uh, for its the, for for the project itself, because uh, it is a rather big scale and it's a, a sort of a regional a project. So it's supposed to have a more uh, like macro feel of how this uh, affect the uh, neighboring area. Because now what we have is like a very single and even chopped up into three pieces of environmental assessment. That's uh, two different things for the we call it SEA, the strategic thing. It's a more um, to see the accumulative uh, environmental impact for the area because there are many projects going on around that area, like the, the third, third runway, yeah, the third runway, and also the Tongchong extension, mm -hmm. uh, metropolis, and so. And um, the, don't forget yeah. the Sekou Chow um, oh, yeah, incinerator, and they've reclaimed more land than they need, as they always do, for that as well, haven't they? Yeah, that's very true because um, what we have uh, what what we recognize is that there is actually the land short of land supply for Hong Kong, so we recognize that. But we just question this is not the best choice for Hong Kong because it takes so long, and then the money is taking is taking a lot of our taxpayer money, and also um, it's uh, not the most efficient way. And of course, it's there is a irreversible destruction to the environment. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, uh, Tom Yam, good morning to you. Uh, okay. Um, so yeah, sorry, you're a little bit faint. Um, hoping we can perhaps boost your level a bit. Um, yeah. So, so the detailed planning and engineering study for this project is now underway. It began in June. It's going to take uh, three and a half years. Um, so, the, uh, the the green groups meeting yesterday were arguing that well, that should be done first before uh, any more. Uh, moves are made uh, to go ahead with this project. Um, um, is that how you see it? Uh, yeah, but uh, I have some actually more fundamental issue on the LTV. Uh, not only is it 
very ill-conceived project, uh, and given the decline in population in Hong Kong and the introduction of the northern metropolis, there's simply no need for LTV at all. Okay, let me summarize the situation. Uh, we know, in, uh, Carol Lam mentioned in the near term, next 10 years, there will be 430,000 private and public houses available. And when they build Northern Metropolis, which is 10 years out, you add another about half a million houses. So just between what we know we have in the near term and the long term, we have close to a million houses available on existing land, identified land, okay? Mm -hmm. And in the same period of time, the demand for housing, and also the government said, is also a million. So without LTV, and just based on the short-term plan and the long-term northern metropolis, we don't need LTV. And if we do build LTV, what will happen? Then you will add another about half a million population in Hong Kong. It's unforecast, unforecast. So the question is, after you spend a trillion dollars building an LTV in the middle of a sea, subject to all the environmental impact that Greenpeace mentioned, where are the people coming from? So it's totally unjustified. So my point being that uh, it's a very ill-conceived project from many points of view, and the addition of Northern Metropolis should put a nail to the coffin. They should simply not do it from the neat points of view, never mind the environmental damage. Would you support the Northern Metropolis project? Uh, yes, I do, because conceptually it makes sense. If the strategy is to integrate uh, with Shenzhen uh, and uh, move the uh, major new business activity towards the end, it makes a lot of sense. And the area is large enough and flexible enough to accommodate future growth, which is not the case for LTV. Once you've done LTV a thousand hectares, that's it. There's no way you can expand it. On the other hand, if you build it and no one comes, what are you going to do with that piece of land? So from the flexibility and strategic point of view, LTV has no place in Hong Kong, and whereas in Northern Metropolis makes a lot of sense. Um, uh, in terms of environmental concerns, what, what's the main problem, what are the main problems for you uh, if the, if the Lantau Tomorrow Vision goes ahead? Okay, uh, my angle more on the hydraulic uh, issue, when you build LTV, you're decreasing the area of the water channel by about 20%, okay? We know in physics, when you decrease the area in a channel, it increases the turbulence. So you could witness an increase in turbulence of the uh, marine traffic in central water and causing you know, a hazard for a very heavy marine traffic. On the other hand, uh, the uh, LTV, they're built very close to the coastline on Lantau side, effectively creating a dead sea environment in the area between uh, LTV and the coastline of Lantau. Now, the uh, dead sea, you begin to lose oxygen and, the, and basically will ruin the ecosystem uh, in that uh, bay area. So are you saying you'd create a nuller there, Tom, effectively? Exactly, exactly. Uh, you look at the Discovery Bay and the U-shaped area, right, U-shaped bay, and by encroaching to those bays, you are making those bays like a dead sea, 
uh, deprived, gradually losing oxygen and uh, killing the natural ecosystem in those bay. Uh, and what about Peng Chow? Because uh, Peng Chow Island's kind uh, of same, in the middle of all this. Yeah, yeah same comment because uh, you see the uh, LTV extend pretty close to Peng Chow. And what previously is standing in Peng Chow or is standing in Wall, you look at South China Sea. But with LTV, you look at skyscraper in, in your face. So the entire uh, the marine environment would change uh, in those few channels. Okay, uh, we're also joined now by Ryan Ip, who's uh, head of land and housing research at the Ah Hong Kong Foundation. Uh, good morning to you. Morning. Would you uh, care to respond uh, to uh, Tom Yam's uh, uh, comment just now that um, because we've had the announcement about the northern metropolis, which is going to eventually uh, house up to two and a half million people, that's the uh, that's the vision. Um, we no longer need Blantow tomorrow. I would say ambassador for, uh, for, for a number of reasons. Number one is about the number of units, uh, because if we look at the northern metropolis, uh, although it's saying that uh, there will be, eventually there will be 2.5 million people, but then what it, what it actually is it included, uh, the existing new towns, uh, the, number, the numbers is that it included the existing new towns, it also included the uh, planned NDA, so the uh, so the truly additional housing units that will be provided by the uh, northern metropolis is uh, less than 200,000 units. And compared to that, um, the, the land town tomorrow actually uh, provide an additional 260,000 housing units. So that is uh, larger uh, for, the, for, the, for the first reason. Uh, second one is on the canton. Uh, you know, in 30 years' time, we will have more than 300,000 private housing units. That is more than... Uh, 50 years old, you know, that is 300 times of the current level. Um, and there is a huge redevelopment need. Uh, and then the end town tomorrow actually provide a place that is close to the urban center for people to decant and uh, to resettle. Uh, that's number two. Uh, number three, um, on, on, on land area, uh, we estimate Hong Kong will need six, uh, sorry, uh, 9,000 hectares of land in the next 30 years. That is roughly three times the size of Sha Tin. Uh, but even if we count in the northern metropolis and also count in the downtown tomorrow, the total potential supply is only six, uh, only 7,000 hectares. Uh, but of course, it depends on what our assumption or our vision is. You know, our, mm. our vision is for all of us to live like in Singapore, you know, with a per capita living space of uh, 270 square feet. Uh, of course, of course, if, of course, if you, if you, if you don't, share the same vision, if you assume we can continue to live as crowd as now, then you don't need uh, 9,000 hectares. But that is what we believe. And one more reason, uh, the fourth reason is on the transport connection. Uh, you know, the whole strategic transport network of Nantau tomorrow will connect uh, New Territory West yeah. through the artificial island to the Hong Kong island. This provides an important alternative corridor for traveling between the anti-West. And Let the me, uh, area, which is very important, uh, uh, considering uh, uh, the current okay. roads are nearly in full capacity, and this greatly increases the development potential of land in new territory. Oh. Uh, you need, uh, okay. I need, I, I need, I need to correct. Yeah. Yes, I need to correct. Ryan, you made several errors. You should check the number of houses that we will build in northern metropolis and the number of houses they have now. Let me quote the number. Northern metropolis will build. 
about 926,000 new houses. New houses. The existing houses in the new town area is 390,000. So the net increase because of northern metropolis is 531,000 houses, not 200,000, as you said. Well, I have, I, have to, I, have, I have to respond to that because... Wait, 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 let me respond in full. So you look at the official announcement, Northern Metropolis can provide 926,000 houses, of which 309,000 are existing. So the net increase is 531,000. Point one. Point two, when you say there should be 9,000 hectare of land in the in requirement, you are doing a very unprofessional job inflating the land. You know how you do it? You assume the house that needs to be redeveloped is only 50 years old versus the government, 70 years old. That you increase the house will redevelop by 300,000. Number two, you, you assume a plot ratio of 3.5 for your new plan, effectively requiring much more land. So between those two assumptions, which is unrealistic and wrong assumption, you inflate the land demand to 9,000 hectares. You should correct that and stop using that number. Okay, Ryan Ip. Can I, can I, can I respond to that? Yeah, yes. Uh, uh, two responses. One, uh, the number that Tom just called about includes the already planned NDA. That is the already planned NDA in Hong Kong. Uh, Mr. Yip, can you please not lose three-letter acronyms, please, because the listeners don't always understand them. Sorry, sorry. Um, that, that, they include the already planned new development areas in Hong Kong, in Kuto North, in Fenang North. That means uh, no matter we will have Northern Metropolis or not, we will have the Hong Kong and we will have the Kuto North, we will have the Fenang North, uh, uh, whatever. So uh, the newly additional number that is provided in the Northern Metropolis is, is 180,000 units. Uh, that's number one. Number two is uh, when we calculate our 9,000 hectares land demand, what we assume uh, is we, is we assume uh, uh, we can have a per capita living space of 270 square feet, just like Singapore. That is 60% more than our current per capita living space. Uh, but of course, that is our assumption. That is our vision. We are not saying that uh, uh, this can um, this this uh, this can be this must be achieved. But uh, this is the, the land is a necessary but insufficient condition. But, but Mr. Yip, you, you're basing your predictions on fantasy there, aren't you? Not reality. Absolutely. Absolutely. You assume a plot ratio of 3.5, Ryan. Find me a place in Hong Kong that have a plot ratio of 3.5. The government used between 4.5 and 6.5. You are inflating the amount of land to mislead Hong Kong people. Well, yeah, yeah, but we're also, but, but Ryan Ip is also talking about uh, uh, everybody having more living space, like Singapore, rather than being uh, cramped into small apartments. But we all know, it? excuse yeah. me, the reality here is Hong Kong developers, if anything, build tighter and smaller, not bigger and more spacious. Right. And if they, if they build a big house, can you afford it? A house, a flat in Lantau tomorrow, based on Michael Wong uh, accounting, would cost $15 million. $15 million. Okay, that's an LTV. Now, if you cannot afford a flat now, you're not going to be able to afford a flat in LTV. Now, one more thing. You are, if the government claim LTV would increase uh, the living standard, like you say, Singapore. 
guess what? LTV has between 400,000 to 7,000 people on 1,000 hectares, right? That's a population density of 40,000 per square kilometer to 70,000 per square kilometer. The, dense, the most dense population dense in Hong Kong is Guntong with 61,000. So in LTV, on the high end, you're having a higher population density than the most dense population in Hong Kong, Guntong. On the low end, the 400,000 population, you are more congested than 13 districts out of 18 districts uh, in Hong Kong. So tell me, how are you going to improve uh, the uh, quality of life, right? The numbers speak for itself. So your mention about aspiration, that's like Anna said, fantasy. It's not real, based on, based on your number, it's not realizable in uh, LTV, it's a fantasy. So forget about your aspiration. The number says that LTV will be more congested than Guntong. And to look at the uh, area, the residential area, where the houses are built, it's even worse. Now, the government said they would uh, assign about 200 hectares for residential development. Okay, so 400,000 people and 7,000 people living in housing estate of 20 square kilometers, that's densest, more dense than the public housing estate in Hong Kong. So once you build LTV, you have a town that more congested than Guntong, and you have housing estate worse than the current public housing estate. Well, I, th so, I, th I think uh, I think a lot of people would agree that it's important to have aspirations for better living standards. But um, but 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 Ryan, it can, can that be achieved through uh, the Land Out Tomorrow vision? But the numbers yeah, show you, yeah, right, the numbers right, show right, you want. There are three. There are three points that I want to raise. Yeah. One is uh, having having enough land is the necessary condition. Uh, it is not the sufficient condition, but that is uh, the first thing that we need. Uh, after having enough land, we can talk about other uh, policies, uh, etc. But without land, there's nothing that we can talk about. Uh, that's number one. Number two is on affordability. I I think the government has already claimed that uh, they will provide at least seventy percent of the houses in Nantan tomorrow uh, in terms of public housing. Uh, that's number two. Yeah. Number three, uh, on, in terms of, um, in terms of uh, uh, density, uh, uh, and there are two sub-points here. Uh, population density is only one matrix of livability. You also have urban design, you also have the building design, and I'm sure uh, in terms of new land, new version land, you can have a lot more urban, de uh, uh, more innovative urban design. Let, like, let's say you can have uh, wider streets, you can have more green areas. You can have, uh, you know, you know, uh, 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 more more better areas uh, uh, that uh, increase your livability. And secondly, you can also help to decant some of the uh, very congested districts in Kuntong and Samshuibo, etc. So I think, uh, all in all, I think um, that seems to be a reasonable plan to me. Well, I think I think Ryan is talking about Ryan talking about fantasy again. The basic number, very simple, is a thousand hectares of land. You have 7,000 people, no matter how you wiggle it, you cannot create more juice, orange juice than orange, right? Simple, simple as that. You can talk all you want about aspiration. But the fact is, based on your numbers you propose, 400,000 people, 7,000 on 1,000 hectares of land, you will be more congested than Kuntong. And if you only assign 200 hectares of land to build residential housing, it will be more congested than public housing. Mr. So it, Mr. It. 
<clears throat> Can I just go back to your point number two? What architects call, I believe, the pathway of desire factor, I think, comes in here, doesn't it? And it ties in with what Mrs. Lam said uh, when she observed uh, all her fellow Hong Kongers dozing off on the train and the bus the other day because of their long commutes. If you park a lot of people in what will then be a remote out-of-town location off Lantau, you will create long commute times up to where all the action is, which is going to be up in Shenzhen area and Shenzhen South. Why on earth would people want to live on Lantau when they can live in the northern metropolis? And why create these extra long commutes? Surely the Lantau location becomes irrelevant just by the new most recent developments. And two points. Uh, first one is, uh, although it's called Lantau tomorrow, but it's actually closer to Hong Kong Island than uh, than the than Lantau. And and and, and, the, and the government and the government is also uh, building the third CBD in Lantau tomorrow. So I think there will be a uh, enough job opportunities for people living in Lantau tomorrow to work in Lantau tomorrow. And that's point number one. Point number two is uh, uh is on uh, is on industry development. I'm sure. Uh, uh, as mentioned in the policy address, there are sort of a division of labor between the northern metropolis and uh, and the uh, traditional CBD, uh, including in Central and also including in Nantau tomorrow. Uh, uh, of course, the northern metropolis will be focusing on some of the new industries, uh, the innovative industries, INTs, arts, uh, arts industry, uh, modern logistics, etc., which is uh, which requires uh, closer collaboration with Shenzhen. But then we also have uh, needs. For our traditional uh, industry, the finance industry, the professional industry, uh, I think all of this can be developed uh, in the uh, older CBDs in Central okay. and also in uh, Northern Metropolis. Well, okay, uh, great. Sorry, we've got to pause it there because we're coming up for the news at nine o'clock. I've got to say uh, thanks to Ryan Yip, who's head of land and housing research at the R Hong Kong Foundation. Our other guests uh, stay with us. Um, the weather is currently 18 degrees, humidity 66%. Uh, the red fire danger warning is in effect. <laughs> And welcome back to Backchat with Anna Fenton and me, Jim Gould. And this morning we're talking about the Lantau Tomorrow Vision. Which is planned for the waters between Lantau and uh, Hong Kong Island. Um, a number of green groups uh, yesterday were objecting to environmental impact studies, saying a lot of the information had not been uh, disclosed. Uh, it's also being argued that with the announcement about the the new uh, Northern Metropolis, which was uh, announced in the Chief Executive's policy address at the beginning of last month, there's actually no need for uh, the Lantau tomorrow uh, reclamation, although uh, we also heard from... Uh, uh, before nine o'clock from Ryan Yip, head of land and housing research at the R Hong Kong Foundation, that uh, the extra uh, apartments, um, the extra uh, the extra land that would be made available um, would be very important for uh, future uh, planning and uh, future housing needs in Hong Kong. So there's a lot of uh, difference of opinion on this. Um, we have with us uh, still in the studio Chan Hall Sion, who's a Greenpeace campaigner. And uh, on the line, uh, Tom Yam, who's a member of the Citizens Task Force on Land Resources. Um, there's a, an email here from uh, Victoria Ann 
says, uh, I haven't listened to this programme for months. Sorry, it's not an email. It's on our, our back chat uh, page. Sorry, on our Facebook page. Uh, the, the address, by the way, is Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. That's our Facebook page. Victoria Ann says, I haven't listened to this programme for months, and today is the first time only because uh, I listened to the programme before. And what's the first thing I heard? Vision. What vision? Please, this is Hong Kong. OK. Um, another email from Din says, uh, How does the SAR government reconcile its plans for Lantau tomorrow and the President's views on biodiversity? And then it, it quotes uh, President Xi as saying, uh, As a Chinese saying goes, uh, all, things, all beings flourish when they live in harmony and receive nourishment from nature. Biodiversity makes uh, Earth full of vigour and vitality and lays the foundation for human survival and development. The President stressed that uh, man and nature need to coexist in harmony, saying we need to have deep reverence for nature, respect nature, follow nature's laws and protect nature. Um, and also, before we speak to our guests again, um, we have a listener uh, on the line, uh, Louise. Hello, good morning. Um, Hello, uh, please go ahead. Uh, my concern is that there has been no clarity about the project's real objectives. Um, it's clear to me that some people have taken the very attractive bait that's being dangled that the Lantau Tomorrow vision is all about providing more housing. But this can't be the case because there are many cheaper, faster and lower risk ways of sourcing land for new housing. For example, you know, the brownfield sites in the new territories and the many acres of land currently held by the large property developers. And I think um, Ryan might have been getting nearer to the real purpose of this um, huge project when he observed that um, one of the real objectives seems to be to create a new transport superstructure to enhance transport connectivity within the entire Greater Bay Area region. So I think probably instead of trying to predict or argue about population trends and housing requirements in a very uncertain future, we need perhaps to take a step back and ask for more clarity about what the whole project's really all about. And a good starting point would be to come up with a more accurate name for it. it it's not a Lantau issue at all. It's a whole of Hong Kong issue, or indeed a whole of Greater Bay Area issue. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, yeah. Actually, the, uh, tra the, the transportation argument would not hold water. Let me explain. Here you are with a city of 400,000 7,000 with only one tunnel connect to Hong Kong and one bridge to Lantau. Look at Qingyi, about the same size as LTV, 1,000 hectares, and only 200,000 people. They have five bridges and tunnels going to Kowloon and Lantau. So from the transportation network point of view, it is invisible. Never mind when the tunnel emerge into Kenny Town, there will be more congested than what Kenyatta is already congested. So the transportation argument does not hold water. It's not feasible in terms of the network capacity. And remember, this tunnel will also handle the traffic from northern Lantau and Tunwood. And for people from Hong Kong to go to the other direction. So this single tunnel arrangement is basically the Achilles heel of the entire concept. If you want to argue from a transportation network, that's what I mean. LTV is an extremely ill-conceived concept that if any government 
take a serious look at it in the beginning, it should never be proposed to begin with. So it won't work from the transportation level point of view. Uh, okay, uh, Chen Hul Sion, you're, you're st still with us uh, in our studio here in Kowloon Tong. Um, how about that? Uh, we need more information about the the real purpose of the project. Yes, that's very. Um, yeah, that's a good question because uh, uh, previously the government says there is no land. So I mean, like four years ago when LTV is raised, the government says there is no land and out LTV can solve everything. And but now, uh, four years later, they uh, they have another big plan. It's called a northern metropolis. And then there is more land. Is like there are three thirty hundred uh, kilometers square, if I remember correctly. So uh, how 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 is there like? Do they have an actual number? Where uh, where is the land available for Hong Kong for housing supply? Why there is like oh there is no land, and then we have a plan. But then with the plan we have. Not, uh, it, we are still in a shortage of land, and then there are more land. So uh, we, uh, we criticize, uh, like we uh, urge the government to have a real understanding of what's available for Hong Kong and what is efficient and realistic. Um, especially for LTV, there are a lot of unsolvable questions for now, and actually no one's uh, believing it's going to be uh, put in uh, completion for in any any soon and any uh, food uh, coming future and including uh, where is the fueling material coming from and how are they supposed to fight uh, the uh, to make the plant align with the carbon neutral uh, plan in uh, by 2050 so there are a lot of questions that the government cannot answer from now but then they are putting this into an execution procedure like submitting the eia project proposal so this is a very uh, disappointing and we we urge the government to retrieve and then to um to ban any procedure uh, relating LTV now. Ms. Chan, wasn't it the case that initially it was suggested that this might house Hong Kong's increasingly elderly population? Is there any other model um, in the region for building this kind of specific lifestyle type of residential project and has it been successful? Yes, actually there uh, uh, there is a very similar case in Hainan and it's called the Ocean Flower Island in uh, mainland China. And it's actually a very, uh, it's worth for us to um, look at more about it because there is a very similar model. They just built a island uh, in it is out of sight, like it's not related to the original neighborhood. And then they try to put elderly people on the Ocean Flower Island in order for them to have a better retiring life. But now the island is like, there are a few faces of the island, but then it's just in the midway of one of the faces and then it's just banned, abandoned. And then the island is reclaimed, but then it's not fully developed. And then there is nearly any people living there now because no one actually wants to move from the original neighborhood to a new flashy artificial island area. So it's like the money is put and then the environmental is destructive and then the land is reclaimed, but then there is no one. It's just left there uh, without any further plan for now. Mm, so do you think Hong Kong people would be similar? They'd prefer to stay in their old familiar community? 
Uh, I mean, uh, where do they want to uh, go that you need to ask them, but not like from a top-down approach telling people, oh, you need to move there because just because of a bigger house. So they need to concern the transportation and then their job opportunities, their family and who they know. And for this project, it's so controversial. And uh, just uh, within this year, there's another survey. More than half of Hong Kong people do not want the LTV. So I think it's very clear that no one really want to move there and from the bot from the start of the project so it's a uh, very questionable who will live in LTV when it's uh, completed uh, well, actually, uh, actually all this all this question really should be handled in a real feasibility study what the government doing now is not a feasibility study they're doing a planning and engineering study bypassing all the issues that we discussed this morning so so this is one point the government is leading all of it misleading Hong Kong people. They keep saying that, oh, it's only a feasibility study. It is not a feasibility study. It is a planning and engineering study that would result in actual implementation. And so all these questions are un still unresolved. Uh, 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 Louise, listen to Louise. Uh, are you still there? Yes, sir. Would, yes. you, would you like to respond to anything you just heard? Well, I think we are all concluding that more effort needs to be made to truly examine the land that is already available for housing, if indeed there is a need for more housing, um, and find a cheaper, faster, and lower risk way of, um, of producing land to build new houses. And the second thing is, I totally agree with your contributor, your, um, your guest, that it's also important to ask people what they want. Mm. And I haven't seen any evidence of that with regard to this project. Mm. I think um, I think the government would say that uh, the land tower tomorrow is is a long term plan. Um, they're taking a multi pronged approach to finding land for development, and that they're also also looking at brownfield sites. But that, yeah, that is a point that's raised there very often. Um, that perhaps uh, more should be done to to find land from those uh, brownfield areas for. Uh, immediate uh, development, but uh, uh, thank you very well, much. I think it's yeah. quite encouraging that suddenly some land has been identified for the north, uh, the, the northern metropolis. The northern metropolis. Yeah. Mm -hmm. mm. Great. Okay. Well, thanks very much for uh, joining us uh, on the line this morning, um, um, uh, Chan Hall Son. Um, yeah. Um, would you support the northern metropolis development? Well, I think there is a lot to be uh, disclosed before we can say whether we support or not, because there is a threat that they want to develop the fringe, uh, uh, the, the fringe area of the wetlands. So, um, and then they are also planning to uh, develop the green belts. But then uh, we think that uh, what we uh, know is that there is a lot of brown view in the northern metropolis, and not only they are immediately available, and they uh, themselves. Are some of the problem because we know there are many electronic waste dismantling sites and then they are toxic. So if we really want to develop the northern metropolis and then to like be an international standard kind of metropolis and be like you can show off to people, then you have to fix the brownfield problem by develop them by making them like clean and restore them into something that people can go there, whether they are for public housing or for public area. So that's what uh, we think that the government should do and prioritize, but not like uh, develop another big and uh, long-term vision that uh, Hong Kong people do not know when they can move in. 
Mm. I mean, it's, it's tough, isn't it? Because uh, obviously there is a need for better housing. There's a need for development. Uh, the, 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 the government is always looking at, uh, at new ways of finding land to develop. Uh, whatever it does, it seems to run into difficulties or criticism or opposition. What do you think their priority should be? Uh, uh, you mean for the land options? Yes, yes. Yeah, I also agree that the Brownfield is the best option because they have mm. been studied, so roughly studied for over than 10 years, and then uh, it's advocated by the uh, many um, civil groups. And uh, we know exactly where are they, and then there are many good examples in the forum that how they can change from some toxic size into something that's available for a, a living standard. So, and then there are actually more and uh, nearly 2,000 hectares in Hong Kong. That's not in, that's not with a clear plan how they're, what they are going to do with the brownfield sites. And the government actually know the number because uh, uh, they have their own study and we also, the civil groups also have their own study of that. So, and there's, uh, for uh, explaining how it is immediately available, uh, many of them are connected to existing roads or like the uh, basic structures and like water and also the electricity and also Wi-Fi. So uh, we can't see how the LTV, like building from middle of the sea from nothing, uh, it's faster than prioritizing to build the brownfields, which is uh, greatly available currently. So we think uh, the government should prioritize the brownfield development option, obviously. Okay, okay. Well, thanks very much. Uh, uh, let's give the last one to uh, Tom Yam on this uh, before we wrap up uh, this particular p part of the program. Uh, hi, hi, Tom Yam, are you still there? Well, let me, let me yeah. end by quoting Mr. Marvin Chan, who is the uh, past president of Hong Kong Institute of Architecture. Mr. Chan said, is it too much to ask for a plan before you reclaim? And I think that applied perfectly to this case. Actually, all the questions we asked, there is no plan except to reclaim a thousand hectares of land. So if Mr. Martin Chan listened to this program, he would be smiling. He'd say, I told you so. There's mm. no plan. Okay, well, uh, thank you very much uh, for speaking to us uh, on the programme this morning. Uh, Tom Yam there, a member of the Citizens Task Force on Land Resources, and also uh, to Chan Hol Sion, uh, Greenpeace campaigner. Thanks uh, very much uh, to both of you. Um, and for the last uh, 10 minutes or so of the programme this morning, we're going to be turning our attention to our second uh, topic, um, which is... Um, plans uh, in Australia to uh, partially open up uh, the borders. Uh, this is uh, opening up to, let's see, uh, foreign visa holders, uh, which uh, should lead to the return of uh, skilled workers and students uh, going back to Australia, and that's being uh, regarded as uh, a major milestone in the country uh, properly opening up again after all the uh, coronavirus uh, restrictions. Uh, I'm happy to say that we're joined uh, on the line this morning by uh, Stephanie Evanett, who's the Chief Executive of the, of the Australian Chamber of Commerce uh, in Hong Kong. Uh, good morning to you. Good morning, Jim. Good morning, Anna. Good morning. Uh, morning. Thanks, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, so how is this uh, news uh, being seen by the Australian business community here in Hong Kong? Yeah, it's been uh, pretty positively received. You know, there's, there's a very large Australian community in Hong Kong, around 100,000 people, and uh, Australian business people are highly mobile. And in pre-COVID times, they'd have regular travel to Australia and other places throughout the region, that was a normal part of our lives here. 
so for, for our community, the ongoing relaxation uh, is really significant. So what does it actually mean? Does it mean that me as a tourist can pack up and go down there? And if so, what happens to me quarantine-wise at either end? There's a lot of uh, different arrangements depending on where you're going. Um, at the moment, in terms of tourists, fully vaccinated South Koreans and Japanese uh, who hold a valid visa will be able to enter without undergoing quarantine. And there's a range of other um, visa types, including international students, graduates, skilled workers and other um, humanitarian type visa holders who can um, now enter Australia um, in different ports. So why uh, do the Koreans and the Japanese get special treatment? It's a great question. I'd love to talk about, you know, what we see here, um, this reopening. It really means for grandparents, they can meet grandchildren for the first time. You know, Hong Kong families, Australian Hong Kong families have been separated for a long time. And this reuniting is really great after a very difficult time of separation. But, but does Hong Kong get the special treatment too? I think that's a, certainly in terms of students. So we have something like uh, the, the um, something with the second largest um, preference for Hong Kong students for international education. Yeah, yeah, but th th that's, that's not what we're talking about, is it? Uh, do do Hong Kong people get this preferential um, entry ability the same as the Koreans and the and the um, Japanese? Yeah, at this stage there are certain visa types that have entry, and certainly Hong Kong people can take advantage of those. No, can we can we just address the question as Hong Kong people? Will we be able to go? You know, even if we're not Australians, will we be able to go to Australia if we're not um, uh, Australians or having Australian family connections? Will we be able to go as tourists? I think that will come in time, Anna. You know, the Australian government has had a really clear so the answer roadmap. is no. Well, the answer is in time, I think. I think there's a really clear roadmap, and I encourage everyone who's interested in visiting, visiting Australia to, to follow the Australian Consulate uh, a website here in Hong Kong because they have really great information about what those stages of reopening mean. And at the moment, it's Australian citizens, certain visa holders, and it's really a staged reopening. So when could we, as, as Hong Kong tourists, expect to be allowed to go, realistically? Yeah, I'm, I mean, there is some talk about mid-next year for a full reopening, but I think like all countries, Australia is taking it, the opportunity to um, vaccinate its population and reopen in a staged manner to um, to respond to what is a pretty volatile um, 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 pandemic environment. So it really only affects Australian citizens. Is actually irrelevant for the most of us. No, that's not true. There are Australian citizens, students mm. and visa holders. Um, as well as skilled worker visa holders. And then there are some countries like South Korea and Japan who have other um, arrangements in terms of being able to enter with a valid visa. It's, it's, it's good news for students, isn't it? Because uh, I, I was looking around to try and find out how, how many Hong Kong students there are normally studying in Australia. I think it's... A, mm. the, 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 I found a figure of around about 18,000. I don't know whether that's uh, accurate, but uh, but presumably many of them won't have been able to attend university uh, in the past uh, during, in the past year or so because of uh, the COVID situation. But uh, but I guess uh, now they now they'll be able to go back to university and uh, continue with their studies. Well, unless right. they were there yeah. already. Yeah, yeah. And, and and that's a big um, and 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 also that's a big part of the Australian economy, isn't it? To overseas students. It certainly is. Education is Australia's fourth largest export. Mm. And in 2019, it was the education sector was worth an estimated 40 billion Australian dollars. 
Um, and of course, there were. There's no doubt there were significant losses of international enrolments during 2021, and that flowed through to thousands of job cuts in the university sector. Um, you know, having said that, education continues to be a significant part of Australia's economy, and we think this temporary interruption of on-site or in-person delivery hasn't changed that. Um, Australia remains an attractive place for international students. And we've, we've seen recent reports from Australia's central bank. Um, they expect the economy to recover quickly and the, uh, the accommodation and retail spending associated with international students, in addition to their, their university um, contributions, I think that will, that will definitely be a big part of it. So what about sports? Because we've got the Aussie Open coming up and mm-hmm. tennis fans will be wondering, what's that going to, what's that going to look like? Great question, Anna. I'm, I'm, I've seen some news um, in terms of what requirements the uh, the Victorian government is putting in place, but it's not something that uh, that I have uh, any insight on in terms of what sports fans will be able to do um, in January. I mean, uh, every country's adopted a somewhat different uh, approach to dealing with the coronavirus. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Australia um, um, obviously had its own policy, I, I guess, uh, being an island, of course, a very large island, but being mm-hmm. an island would uh, influence the way it handled it. I mean, uh, a lot of people looking from the outside would say, well, Australia's handled it pretty well in terms of keeping the number of infections down and the number of uh, fatalities and so on. Um, w- what does the Australian business community here in Hong Hong Kong think about the way the, the, the countries manage the coronavirus pandemic? Well, I think it's probably, you know, um, we're, we're not, uh, like all communities, we don't all hold the same view. There's certainly been a lot of frustration about the border closures um, in the community, and that's why the reopening plans are, are really welcomed. Um, you know, once the Australian government pivoted from the zero COVID model and they articulated this roadmap for reopening of society, linking it to vaccination targets, um, it was very clear that um, what people needed to do, um, what business needed to do, um, what the society needed to do to, to achieve those targets and, and reopen. And I think that's what we're seeing the results of now. So what's the quarantine for people returning from Australia into Hong Kong at the moment? We're currently in Group B, so we're two weeks. Two weeks, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is um, um, yeah, that's the other thing I was going to ask. Um, what, what's the feeling about that? Um, I mean, t- two weeks. It's not as bad as three weeks, uh, which which it will be coming from a lot of places. But uh, um, how, how do people feel about that? Having to quarantine for two weeks, coming back to Hong Kong, is that having an Im- impact on travel and willingness willingness to travel? We are seeing that. I mean, the the ongoing border closures and the quarantine requirements we see impacts Hong Kong's attractiveness um, Mm. as a travel hub, as a global business hub, um, and as a base for international business in the region. How How much has Qantas cut back the flights? Qantas is currently planning to reopen flights from March next year. Not until March? Mm -hmm. March. Why the delay? I... I think that's probably a question for Qantas. Um, yeah. You know, they really um, um, plan to come back. They've clearly um, publicly said that they have a reopening plan across the world and, and Hong Kong is scheduled for February, right. February, March. Right, right. OK, well, I'm sure um, a, a lot of people will, will welcome this uh, partial opening of uh, Australia and um, be looking forward to hopefully next year um, 
other places as well in the world uh, opening up and international travel resuming and uh, you know we can all hope for the best I guess um, but uh, thank you very much for joining us uh, on the program this morning uh, Stephanie Evanett uh, the chief executive of the Australian Chamber of Commerce in Hong Kong um, just before we come to the end of the program this morning a couple of more uh, emails on our main topic which was about the Lantau tomorrow vision uh, so um, Sam writes, uh, Dear Jim and Anna, I would like to raise a simple question. Having heard from the, uh, the aspirations from Ryan, um, that was, uh, that's a reference to Ryan Yip, who uh, was on the programme earlier, uh, that the Lantau plan would uh, uh, like to raise the living quality of locals. What is the culprit of substandard housing without proper urban planning, particularly uh, population? One, there is uh, no use in making land. Besides, what is the point of setting such a proportion of the planning uh, housing? The apartments in Hong Kong are no longer affordable anymore. Uh, that's from Sam. John writes, uh, rather than pursue the LTV project, the government should simply work closer with the large Hong Kong developers and conglomerates to redevelop their underutilised industrial properties and huge tracts of farmland. As an example of this, Chung Kong Group last week applied for the rezoning of land in the Fotan Industrial Estate into a residential development with 4,700 apartments. The government should fast-track these types of projects. And, as I have previously argued, uh, the government should give the green light for a redevelopment of the Kwai Chung container port, which uh, could produce hundreds of thousands of apartments. OK, that's from John. Thank you very much. Um, thanks very much to uh, all of our listeners and our guests this morning. And uh, thanks to you, Anna. And You're thanks, very welcome. Uh, and thank you to our, our producer, Yuki Jung, and our technical support team. Um, a look uh, at the weather before we go to the news summary and morning brew. Uh, it's going to be uh, dry, cool in the morning, mainly cloudy, uh, but becoming fine later in the day. Uh, top temperature will be around uh, 21 degrees. Um, so, moderate north to northeasterly winds. The outlook fine and dry in the next few days. Still cool tomorrow morning. Temperatures will be appreciably lower in the new territories, windier during the weekend. Currently, it's 19 degrees, humidity 64%, and the red fire danger warning signal is in effect. The chief executive has announced the 2021 policy address. With the national security law and improved electoral system, Hong Kong is back on the right track of one country, two systems. We will continue to leverage our unique advantages to boost the economy. The artificial islands in the central waters and the northern metropolis development strategy will fundamentally resolve the land and housing problem. Building a bright future together, the 2021 policy address. The new summary with Andy Shrovsky. The president of the Hong Kong Federation of Restaurants says the sector largely supports mandatory use of the COVID location recording app. The Leave Home Safe app will be needed to enter regulated premises, including restaurants, gyms and hotels, from December the 9th. Simon Wong says customers had written down fake contact details in lieu of using the app. 
A member of the Commission on Children says the government needs to set up a system to investigate all deaths of children. Priscilla Loy was commenting after a government advisory panel said child suicides more than doubled between 2016 and 2018 compared to the previous three-year period. And a man has appeared in court in the U.S. state of Wisconsin to be charged with murdering five people during a Christmas parade on Sunday. They were killed when a car was driven into them at high speed. During the hearing, prosecutors revealed that a sixth person, a child, had since died. I'll have more news at 10 o'clock. It's time right now on Radio 3 to say good morning to Phil Whelan and his guests on The Morning Brew. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. Morning. Hi. Good morning. And good morning to you too. How are you doing? Excellent. Hello. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? Good. Morning. Fine, thank you. Thanks for inviting me to your show. Oh, you. Good morning. How are you? Good to see you. On your radio and live online. This is the Morning Brew. Hello, good morning, and welcome to Wednesday's Morning Brew here on Radio 3. Fun day, Wednesday, 10.40, we present to you the recorder. Yeah. But not as you've likely heard it before. See, although this instrument is known to be kryptonite to parents of small children all over the world, when it's played properly, it can be magical. Scores to the Harry Potter movies are full of it. And Vivaldi was partial to the odd virtuosic toot as well. Well, the bad news is composer and conductor Colin Touchin is rather a wicked recorder player himself, so I'm afraid there's no getting away from it on today's programme, but he is bringing with him some great bits of music. 11.10, we're off to Melbourne to catch up a day later than normal with biz futurist Maurice Mizalowski. Now, in light of the recent Food Panda dispute, Maurice will look at what needs to be done to the gig economy to make it more accountable on both sides and effective in years to come. Is it basically a good idea done badly right now? Anyway, after 11.30, from a ridiculously early Wednesday morning in Paris, RTL France's Philippe Devar will be us for more chat and music. And after 12, class is in session with Chris Watts. So we join him at his Motion Dynamics studio in Central and on Facebook Live. I don't mind you coming 